Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. A reading from the Old Testament that we just read from Exodus is one of those passages in Scripture that Christians throughout the history of the church have been obsessed with. Now, when we say obsessed, usually we have negative connotations, but in this instance, uh, it's really a good thing. Uh, I think a lot of us are very familiar with this story. We've been familiar with it since we were young, the story of the burning bush. And so we, we forget or we lose sight of just how incredible it really is. But before I jump right into the text, I'm going to give you a little bit of background, just in case you either forgot or you're hearing this story for the very first time. If you remember, the book of Exodus opens with the pharaoh of Egypt essentially ordering that all Jewish males under the age of two should be slaughtered. And the reason why he orders that is that the Israelites have become numerous, there are many of them, And the Pharaoh is worried they may revolt. And so in that story, the family of Moses puts him on a little ark. And that should, in our minds, if we remember the story of the ark and the flood, kind of hearken us back to that. But Moses is put on this little ark. And ironically enough, the very family that orders the slaughter of these Hebrew males is the family that takes in this Israelite boy and rears him. And it's really presented as miraculous. And so, maybe you're familiar with the movie The Prince of Egypt. Maybe you watched that when you were younger. Maybe your kids watched that. And I loved it when I first saw it. But unlike in that movie, where Moses is completely unaware of his identity as an Israelite. In the story, we're let in on the fact that Moses knows the whole time. He is raised in Pharaoh's court, but he's well aware of the fact that he is not an Egyptian. He is an Israelite, and he knows that his people are in bondage. And so the story kind of fast-forwards to when Moses is older, and he sees a taskmaster unnecessarily whipping a fellow Israelite brother, an Israelite slave. And upon seeing this, Moses does what you and I don't do. Oftentimes we see things that we don't like and we might create a fuss, but Moses decides that he is going to get involved, that he is going to put a stop to this violence and this oppression. And Moses strikes down this Egyptian taskmaster. Now, the text does not present that necessarily as a good thing. In fact, maybe quite the opposite. The text then, in the narrative, immediately after he strikes down this taskmaster, Moses runs into the wilderness, into the desert, into that same place where he will lead his people only a couple years later, and he is hiding out there. And it is at this point that he runs into uh, um, Jethro's family, Right, Jethro's family, they're gathering water for their flock, for their family. Moses sees this, and Moses, once again, 
did what Moses did in this case. He intervenes and he puits an end to the bandit's fun. And Moses gets accepted into Jethro's house and ends up marrying one of Jethro's daughters. And we kind of see Moses at this point in the story as uh, maybe what you and I have experienced in our own lives. That time when we, we're not really sure what we're doing with our lives and we're a little bit lost and we're trying to start anew. And that's where we are and we pick up with this part of the text. The text reads that Moses is tending Jethro's flock. Just like any kind of ordinary day. Only this text reveals to us that as he's tending the flock near the Mount of Horeb, he sees a bush go up in flames. Now this is an ordinary sight in the desert. Flames happen all the time. Bushes, uh, the, the fauna I don't really know what the wording is for the desert, but goes up in flames all the time. The commentators make that clear. What is wild, though, here is the bush is not consumed. And it's as if he can't look away. In fact, he has to see what this is. What is this marvelous wonder? What is this sight? And what's interesting is the text says at first that an angel of the Lord, an angel just means a messenger of God, made this happen. But as he moves towards the the bush, the story tells us that it's not an angel's voice who speaks to him, but it is God's voice. And God calls him by name, Moses, Moses, come no closer. Remove the sandals on your feet, for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. What a sight this must have been. What an experience he must have had. And then this voice, this God reveals himself as not just any God, not the God of the Egyptians, not the God of any other tribe. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob. And at this point, the sight is so marvelous that it reads that Moses had to hide his face, for he was afraid to look upon the living God. And so the living God tells him, I have seen the misery of your people, the oppression of them by the Egyptians, and I am going to intervene. I am going to put an end to their suffering, and I am going to bring them to the land that I promised to Abraham. The land flowing with milk and honey. Then Moses, much like you and I, is like, well, who who am I? One, why are you talking to me? What what do you want from me? I'm trying to figure out my life. What, what, What is all this? You want me to go to Egypt? to the place that I just fled because I killed someone and tell the court that I was raised in to let these people go. And interestingly enough, we hear about slave revolts and revolutions throughout history, but we always tend to see that it is after the climax or the apex of that empire's rule. They're kind of on the decline. And so these revolutions can be successful. But the text here presents it that 
Egypt is at the height of its powers. The people of Israel have no way to get out of this mess on their own strength. They need a way to be made out of no way. They need an intervention from outside of themselves to make this possible, to make this happen. And that is what God has told Moses that he is going to do. But Moses, rightly so, right after saying, well, who am I? Well, what do I tell my people? Who do I tell them who you are? Why would they want to revolt when they know that Egypt can smash them. God says, tell them my name. And my name is this. I am who I am. Or as other translations say, I will be who I will be. Which to you and me doesn't sound like much of a name. And on some level, it's not. It is a name. It is that name above every name that St. Paul talks about. It's the tetragrammaton that Jews do not say out loud. They say Adonai instead of what we sometimes vocalize as Yahweh, but we have no idea how it's vocalized. But this is God's name. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And much like the characters throughout the Old and New Testaments, the name has a meaning. I will be who I will be. Which essentially means that you have no grasp upon me. You cannot manipulate me. You've heard me say this in the past. So often, even for us Christians, we treat God as that cosmic vending machine in the sky. We put in our quarters and out we get is, based on your preference, either a Pepsi or a Coke. That is not how the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, works. Our God is free. We can do no charm, no chant, that will get God to just do what we want God to do. God is free. And we see this in the passage from Luke. We see this illustrated. Jesus is asking his people, you remember that time when Pontius Pilate mingled the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices, which to Jews is a sacrilege, desecration. Do you remember that time when the tower at Siloam fell on those 18 people? Do you think that they were worse sinners than you are? And he clearly says no. And the reason this connects with the last story is that so often the way we think about how religion works is that you get what you give. What you get is what you deserve. So these people who experience these tragedies, they must have been greater sinners. The message from Exodus and the message from Luke is the same. That's not how God operates. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, does not operate in a system of karma. It is not tit for tat. 
our Lord is free. When tragedy falls upon us, that doesn't mean that we've done something terrible and that we are being punished for it. At times, we do have consequences for our actions. But good Jews have known this before the time of Christ. Do you remember the book of Job? Job is presented as upright, as spotless, and yet tragedy befalls him. We see this in the psalm. Why do the wicked prosper? Karma doesn't work if the wicked prosper. In the Old Testament, there's very little notion of an afterlife. This life is what we've got. So if they're prospering in this life, what does all this mean? This might seem like pretty bad news for you and me, right? I am so often good because I want to receive a blessing from it. I'm not naturally altruistic. I want the system of karma to work for me. But the reason why this is good news is because of the cross. Because of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because as St. Paul makes clear, those people who we see who are less righteous than us are in fact no different from us. I'm not trying to say that certain things aren't far worse than others. That oppression isn't far worse than other sins. But Paul makes clear that None of us are righteous. No, not one. So if that system of karma is how life works, then we're all in trouble. But God, in God's freedom, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, has once again made a way out of no way. He has made the unrighteous, righteous. He has died for the ungodly, namely you and me. And this is all because God is free. God is not bound by karma. God will have God's way. Now, I am frustrated by God's ways regularly. I don't know about you, but week in and we, this, this past week, I was complaining to God about how I things should have been this way and not that way, and I know better. Like, and I don't even say that to you know, be cute or whatever, but Lord, don't you see this would have been a better way for you, for your people? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has made a way out of no way, and is waking a way out of no way, calls us to trust him. And sometimes that's the hardest thing possible. Because friends, so often karma is so much safer Karma seems to make so much more sense. But our God has said that grace triumphs over karma. That his ways triumph over the tit for tat. 
that he is for us and that despite everything, we can trust him. For he has made you and I his friends. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.